run the BIS uh, ministry at church, and I just want to welcome you all to our last BIS plenary of the year. I'm so glad all of you could make it, and we're looking forward to, to what God has in store for us today. Uh, I'm going to ask Pastor Simon to just uh, open for us and to introduce our speaker. Thanks. Thank you, Mesha. Um, so for most of you, you pr probably know me. Uh, we do have guests who are not uh, from Every Nation Rosebank, so we want to welcome you. And um, also good to see uh, familiar faces I haven't seen in a long time. I uh, just want to brag on one guy, uh, Herman. He's sitting there at the back. Um, I'm going to say this for the whole of today. The, the reason why I need to take time to just uh, celebrate this man is... Uh, Herman was my first white friend. Like, really, he was my first white friend. 24 years ago, we were at VITS together studying engineering. Uh, Abel, you remember, right? Uh, studying engineering. Now, the story goes, we both come from Porch. We did not meet in Porch because white were on the one side, blacks were on the other side, and we met at VITS, right? And we became covenant brothers. Uh, so I haven't seen him for 15 years, I don't know because uh, he went and worked in Cape Town. Last Sunday, he sends me a message. He says, I'm here at your church, and you're not at church. What's going on with you? And then the story continues, and I'm going somewhere with this. He says he used to work with Dave Porter. He used to work with Mark at the mines. I'm like, wow, you know all these people that are in my life now. But I, I almost get emotional, because if you have read the book Better Together, I share the story of me and him praying together during apartheid about the change of South Africa. So we would meet at the railway line that bordered, uh, the, that bordered Pochistrum, the town in Ikacheng, and pray for change in South Africa. And today we are here together. It's good to see you. And his wife, Annie, thank you. It's nice meeting you. Thank you for being here today. It, uh, it's a special day for me. So if you understand the context of where we are, I just spoke at Rosebank Union, uh, and we were talking about diversity because they want to become a multicultural church. And right there when I was preaching, I, was, I spoke the same story. I shared the story. And he was sitting here in Rosebank. Well, praise God for that. How God works, eh? And Sibs, thank you for being here. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, Sibs leads a City Hill Church, uh, part of every nation, uh, in another side of the world. You know, people who come from the north, they, they come with passports, like those who come from Pretoria. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to just share devotion before I introduce our speaker. And every time we have this uh, biz plenaries, we share devotion to just remind ourselves of the God that we serve. And because of the current economic climate, we tend to forget about the God that we serve. And I want to just remind you about the God that we serve. All right? Listen to this. Psalm 37 verse 19. They will not be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine, they will have more than enough. That doesn't sound like... Uh, things that we should be experiencing in the time of recession. It says, they will not be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine, they will have more than enough. The ESV goes like this. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they will have abundance. That word abundance, for me, it says that even in the time of technical recession, they will have abundance. I mean, you choose to believe that. Because it's scripture, it's the word. Go to Genesis 46. The Bible says the Israelites, in the time of famine, they moved to Goshen. And in Goshen, in Egypt, they prospered. God blessed them even in the time of famine. 
So that's the kind of prayer I want to bring this morning, that God will bless us even in the time of famine. God will prosper us even in the time of famine. I will conclude with two quick testimonies to remind us that God does bless us because He's a promise-keeping God. Uh, recently, we had someone uh, give a very small tithe, just a couple of millions. And then I thought, is this a tithe? And I thought to myself, God does bless His people even during the time of famine. And that's not to say that uh, the small tithes are not important. It's to say to us, every gift matters before God. And when God has blessed you, you do well to be a blessing. So for us as a church, we use the opportunity to bless another church because a radical generosity breeds radical generosity. So we use the opportunity. We say we also want to be a blessing, and we sow the seed somewhere else. The story that I want to conclude with, this testimony is my wife's testimony. I will uh, share it again tomorrow morning because my wife, tonight, she's flying to Las Vegas without me. Severe was so wise. He said we should get her a t-shirt written, what happened in Vegas, Jesus knows. <laughs> I think Siv is in the spirit. <laughs> Lindy was, read this book, Leading and Loving It, and it's about uh, women in ministry. It's about uh, pastor's wives. And she wrote back to the people who um, wrote the book and gave them feedback. I said, this is a great book, timely book. Thank you. They wrote back to her and they said, look, we run this uh, ladies' conferences once a year. Would you, come in, would you like to come and join us? And my wife, being my wife, said, I'm here in South Africa. If you sponsor me, I will come. <laughs> and they said, sure, we'll sponsor you. Just get yourself here. So they covered accommodation, meals, conference costs. She even, she's even got a chauffeur, so I better be praying. But that's to say that God really looks after us. God provides for his people. She'll be away for a week, so I need all the prayers I can get. Before I introduce our speaker, I just want us to reflect on that. Let's take a moment of prayer and silence before the Lord. Remind ourselves of the good God that we serve. Father, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to die for us on the cross. And Father, even as we look at this topic of work and who you are, even in the midst of all that we do, Father, help us to understand, Father God, that which you have called us to be and to do. And Lord, I pray, Father, for Steve as he shares the word with us this morning, as he challenges some of our paradigms. I pray that, God, our hearts will be wide open to receive to, what, what, to what, what you want to share with us today. I pray, Father, that God, even those who are trusting you and believing you, Father God, for breakthrough in their businesses, Father, we pray for that breakthrough today in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also pray for those who may still be incorporate and really trusting you, God, for breakthrough in their workplace. We pray for grace, Lord. We pray for grace, for breakthrough in whatever they may be facing, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So as I introduce Steve, uh, Steve is here with his wife, Anita. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Steve is a leadership consultant, mentor and speaker, over 30 years experience working in faith-based communities on three continents. He has a degree in political sciences from Pretoria University. He and his wife have raised two adult children um, 
on the autistic spectrum and are currently living in the UK with their son. Their daughter recently completed PhD and lives and works with her husband in Vancouver. In Vancouver. I just want to mention, Steve uh, lectured me at Bible school. So if you find my theology skew, you can blame it to him. This is 24 years ago, and I uh, really honor you. Steve is a friend of this ministry. He's preached here uh, many times, and it's good to have you with us. Let's welcome Steve. Thank you, Simon. Thankfully, we are all always learning. So even if my theology was wrong 25 years ago, there's no excuse on you, Simon. You can you can get it. You you can do some repenting as well. <coughs> um, we can't blame others for our own ideas. Amen. But. Um, this morning, it's a, it's a great joy to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor. And what I, I think I'll give you just a bit of an outline of what I'm wanting to do here. First of all, I'm going to share something of, of my own journey into understanding some of these subjects because until very recently, Christians knew they were church on Sunday, but they didn't have a clue what they were on Monday. They knew they might be Christians, but they weren't really sure. They were often engineers or brokers or bankers or computer consultants or, you know, water experts and uh, whatever they were. And, but they really didn't understand the connection between what they did on Monday and how they were community in church on Sunday. And re so it's been relatively recent. Now, you need to understand that though the things that have held us back from that understanding go back hundreds of years in the church. Errors in our thinking, which go back actually to the beginnings of church. And so they don't get changed by an altar call. Right? You, I, I can't renew your mind. You have to put some effort in to engaging with a, with a subject matter to really come to understand what God wants you to grasp for yourself and to make your own in terms of this wonderful subject. So I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about my own journey. And, you know, as Simon said, I've led churches, I consult a bit, but until relatively recently, I was either pioneering a church or trying to pastor it, which I never did very well because I can't manage, well, I can just about manage my own life, but I certainly can't manage my wife and children, <laughs> let, alone, let alone a church. So, and much, much of local church is about management. So I, I, I really struggled with that aspect of it. But I, I went through a time of fundamental crisis, which I will explain to you. And then out of that, God spoke to me, and, and this was written. So this morning, we're going to have a look at a little bit of, of that journey. Secondly, we're going to begin to look at what we learn about God and work. Because we learn a great deal about work from what God does. And, uh, you, you know, that might surprise you, but God works, and He's still working. So we, we learn from that. Then, we, then I'm going to look at Adam before the fall. And what we can learn from the work that God gave to Adam to do. 
And then we're going to have a look at how that was impacted by the fall. What are the consequences of man's sin upon man's work? And then we're going to have a look at five strongholds which the enemy uses to isolate you in your place of work. And they are five areas of error in our thinking as church. And I will kind of picture that from a biblical point of view. So we will have two sessions, uh, three sessions with two breaks and, oh, what's the time now? 25 past. We'll have, a, we'll have a pause at about 10 for 15 or so minutes. I do ask that not only will we release you at about 12, but we have a flight to catch. So at some point we need to get to an airport this afternoon. <laughs> so I don't want millions of questions um, at the end, but I will give time for a few. And, uh, and then maybe, you know, we can help you clarify some of the things that we've shared. But let me start off by just reading a short passage from Genesis 2. Now, you know, I don't know if you've ever read a book like this. I don't recommend it if you're studying. But um, if, you, if you, we often read the first chapter and the last chapter, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that that gives us an understanding of what's in the middle, if we're in a rush. But... Um, but in the Bible has two bookends, Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 21 and 22. So the, the story of the scripture starts in a garden with a river. And the river has trees, which God puts by the river in the garden. And the garden is a walled garden. It's a protected garden. It's hedged. That's what Eden means, a hedged or walled garden. It's a specific bounded space and then and then he creates Adam and he puts him in the garden and and he then recognizes that Adam can't represent him on his own so he gives him Eve because it's only in team do we reflect God because God's team you need to remember that in your businesses and in any church life you look at never ever join something where there's one man and a staff, right? Don't. We need teeth, because otherwise we cannot reflect Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he was the first community that we see in Scripture. So, <clears throat> so we will, <clears throat> the last chapters of the Bible, so into this garden he places family, right? The last chapter of the Bible, we see a river and a garden and trees and families because they've become a city now so all the rest of scripture is helping us understand how man was excluded from that garden and how God set about returning him to the garden because in that garden heaven kissed earth there was complete open community Man and God walk together in the cool of the evening with no hindrance to their relationship. No fears, no doubts, no angst, no anger, no disappointments, no sadnesses, no sickness. And that's where we end in the last God. And so the story in between is how God gets mankind from his being excluded from the first garden and restoring his capacity to enter the garden again. 
right? Where heaven and earth kiss again. So I'm going to just read a couple of verses from chapter 2 of Genesis, which is one of the bookends. That keeps your library together of all the rest of Scripture. You know, on your mantelpiece, you've got your nice African bookends cut out of stone with elephants on them. You know the ones I mean? These are the bookends, and, and they give us a clear understanding of God's original purpose and where the ultimate heart and goal of God rests. So we need to return to them and remind ourselves of them because everything else has to fit those two statements of Scripture. So chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading from my dear old ancient Bible here that I've carried with me for 40 years around the world. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed them. Sorry. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So the first person to rest in the Bible was not man. Why does God rest? Does God need to rest? Does he run out of energy? God never asks you to do something that he hasn't done himself. He rested because he wants it as a principle for all mankind, for all the future. And we'll talk more about rest as we go along. So this is the account, verse 4, <coughs> of the heavens and the earth which were when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet, been, had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. That word cultivate is quite important. It's the word from which we get culture. And they translated <coughs> the Hebrew language into Greek in the Septuagint about 200 BC. Uh, they, two important words came from that Greek word. Uh, economy, uh, the word from which we get economy, and the word we get ecology. Oikos nomos and oikos logos. Thank you. Some water is a grand idea. And um, so, isn't it? Great, good idea. Water's good. <coughs> so, you know, God, God's, he instructs Adam to cultivate or to bring culture to or to bring expression of life out of that which God has made. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge good and evil verse 15 then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate that's the word culture again to cultivate and keep it Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, there are numerous principles that we're going to draw from this. But first, a bit of my own story. I, I was brought up in England and began 
<coughs> in ministry and youth of the mission. And at a particular point in time, we started another church, a church denomination out of it. Well, it's not really a denomination. It's a group of relationships called Church of the Nations, which I still work very closely with. New Creation in Robin Hills was the first church we planted in Africa, on African soil, and out of that we started loads of ACE schools around the country because it was a means by which we could uh, propagate and encourage non-racial education in the country and give people an equal footing and equal standing in the education of, of, of this country, which at that point was not technically legal in any other setting. So <coughs> um, we began that the first schools in the early 80s, and there are now about 500 of those schools around Africa. So that is a tremendous testimony to what was sown. And <coughs> I came out, I began in, in Church of the Nations. We started, my wife and I started a, a church which is in Kent, and that's where we lived for eight years, and it's still there, so that's... <laughs> That's great. That's through no, through no wisdom or strength of my own. That was purely the grace of God because I went there with absolutely zero experience. But, you know, then we do, did those things in those days with a vision and prayer and a bit of zeal. We thought we could change the world. But now I'm learning that a few other things might be good along the way. Bit of, a bit of wisdom does help. And, uh, but the church is still there, and then we moved here. We worked with that church in New Creation. Then we moved to Pretoria and started another church there, and that's when I had a degree. And at, in the early uh, part of this decade, of millennia, 2002-03, we, we went through a bit of a crisis. I did personally. <coughs> in a fairly short period of time, like a few weeks, I lost a church and income and a network of friends. <coughs> now, I don't need to go into all the story of that, other than to say, God has restored most of the relationships, and I, he's always good at restoring incomes, as long as you follow the ravens. Don't expect the ravens to come to you, but to find out what God's saying to you and the passions that he's seeking to ignite in your own heart, and you need to follow the ravens. But out of that crisis, God really began to speak to me. And a, a dear friend of mine, a Zimbabwean, who now lectures in England at Warwick University, he's, he's, you know, he's a business, does a business consultancy and things. He, he gave me some very good advice. He said, always write down lessons when you walk through a crisis. <coughs> he, um, <coughs> because you learn more through your challenges and the things that you fail in than you do through your successes. The things that are hardships, the things that are difficult for you to engage with, you learn far more. <coughs> so I, I like to write. I I'm not a prolific uh, diary keeper, <coughs> journal keeper, but I, I do comment in my journals from time to time. But when I walk through difficulties, I always write down principal lessons. So. God began to speak to me during this crisis because I determined that I wasn't going to rush out and just try and put my own hands to the plow. I wanted to know which plow God wanted me to pick up. And he began, he, one day he asked me a question. <coughs> well, actually he started with a comment. He said, Stephen, do you realize that 80% of what you teach on Sunday is relevant to 20% of people's lives? Now, <coughs> that's not a very good odds. You know, I don't know if there are any 
lecturers or teachers here, but if you set, if you set an exam with five questions <coughs> and you get this one student who sends you back an answer, uh, the exam paper with one perfectly answered question, but they don't attempt the other four, <laughs> you cannot give them more than 20%, right? <laughs> however much you might like to, however well they've answered that question. So I, I mean, they said, God, why? why? Why is my scattering of seeds missing the point so much? And he said, when have you preached on the subject of work? I realized I had never, ever given a message in 25 years of church life on the subject of work. But worse, <coughs> I'd never heard one either. And around that time, my wife and my mother sent me a book. She was in Cambridge University, uh, lived in Cambridge, and she went to a church where a, a number of, of uh, theologians and other folk who uh, attached to the college there went to, went to that, that community. And she sent me a couple of books by uh, two of their professors, <coughs> and one specifically on work. One on globalization and world change and economic movements and people and things, and that was very interesting and I still keep in touch with that chap. But <coughs> the other one was particularly on the subject of work. And, and I began to study this because I, I wanted to ask some very profound questions of myself and of my message. And <coughs> I began to realize that most Christians hadn't heard a message on the subject of work by the, in the year 2000 either. <coughs> and even though we might say to people, when they go to work on Monday, that's their kingdom mission. If they haven't had the strongholds uprooted in their thinking, they don't quite get it. Because we've tended, we've tended to see church as A, the primary goal of the Christian, other than heaven. And, and our, our, our primary community, and the place we primarily need to associate with. And we haven't really understood that Jesus only used the word twice. And yet he talked about kingdom 90 times. So clearly for Jesus, church was good and important because it's the community of the people of God. But his primary focus was bringing and demonstrating a message from and the power of the kingdom which was going to overturn all other kingdoms, Daniel chapter 2, vision of Nebuchadnezzar, and I can go on and on. So Jesus, when he's talking to Pilate, says, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this realm, or my, my disciples would fight for me. It's of another realm. It's of another kind. It's a totally different type. And I have been living and demonstrating and showing what this kingdom's like for three and a half years. So he taught the principles of the kingdom, which you can read in, in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 to 7, and his discourse to the disciples and other places, and parables of the kingdom, of which there are 14, what, 15 of them, uh, where they, he talks about the values of the kingdom and what that kingdom looks like and how it's in stark contrast to all the kingdoms of this world. So I, I, I realized in this journey that I, I had actually placed far more focus on church and far less attention on kingdom. 
because I was leading a church, and I thought that that's what pastors did, because they wanted as many people in their meeting on Sunday, and they actually were rather clueless and careless about the ones they sent, which is really what we need to measure the success of a church by. How successful or how impactful they are with their lives, where we send them. Not how many gather on a Sunday morning or how much money comes through our accounts. It's how we send them. And you are sent every week. And you are sent with a, a particular set of priorities to demonstrate a kingdom. And we'll have a look at some of what that looks like during the course of this morning. So let's start with God's work. I haven't read chapter 1 for the sake of time. But God, it tells us that he works. In fact, it says certain things about his work. We know he, he speaks and he says, let there be. And there is. And he says it seven times. And each time it pauses and says, and God saw that it was. And the last time it was very good. So we see God in his creativity working. So creativity of expression, whatever it is that you do, whatever you take out of that which is hidden in terms of vision, in terms of the knowledge that you've gained, in terms of your life experience, in terms of the richness of the relationships you enjoy, that which is taken out of that immaterial unseen space and brought into a place of creativity of action it's work whether it's an artist with a canvas or you in front of a computer screen or at a mind face extracting ore from a mine it's work now <clears throat> so God starts and he created and he created by speaking God's work is different from ours in that he did what theologians call he created ex nihilo, out of nothing you don't create out of nothing you create out of things that God has placed as raw materials on this earth out of the plants that grow out of the minerals under the earth out of the contents of your brain out of the skills and capacities and strengths he's placed in your body and your frame, out of the relationships that he gives to you, all of those things are resources out of which we create. So God alone creates out of nothing. You create out of a substance that God has given to us in one way or another. All right? Whether you're just purely an academic thinker and you write, then you put something on paper, and that's your creativity, or whether you're a, a, a mine officer down a gold mine and you're extracting a thin layer of, of, of black rock out of the middle of a quartz vein. You are, you are working, and you're extracting a good. And all those things that are hidden are goods. They're all goods. But if they don't find expression, they're of no value. Right? So you need to learn to take that which God has placed at your 
in your hand, which is your capacities and strengths, and you need to encourage, I'd encourage you to see these as things that you are extracting and, and making good. Because God wants to have an expression of yourself in that very thing that you're doing. Right? So you take something of what God has given, but you take something of yourself also. And out of the two together, it combines to make something which otherwise wouldn't be there. So the first thing we learn about God's work is that he created and he formed man and he planted a garden. Anybody planted gardens? Does that work? Yeah, and that, that's work, isn't it? You have to be creative. You have to dig the soil. You have to decide what you're going to plant. You have to, you know, move the turf where you want to make a flower bed or, a, you know, whatever it is. And, and you dig and it's work. So God works, all right? Secondly, the next thing we learn about God's work is that he took continual pleasure from it. I would encourage you during the course of your day to take pleasure from the work you do. You need to pause and say, Lord, thanks. This is good. <laughs> because you're not just doing it for a paycheck at the end of the month. We'll address that considerably more later. Right? You're doing it because you want to bring glory to God out of revealing the goods. Amen. You bring glory to God because he's instilled things in earth that are hidden and you come along out like Adam and out of the ground you form something out of your head, your strength, your arms, your capacities. You make something that otherwise would not be there. And this all has an aspect in which it brings glory to God. There is one of the words for work, for worship. There are many, as you know, I'm sure, in the Bible. A number. But one of them is abad, which means to worship or to work. So God ties this straight into the early chapters of Genesis and says to us, your work is a part of your worship. Because you're taking something that's unique to you strength, the capacity that God has placed in your life, resources that are unique to you, a culture, a language, a face, a color, uh, whatever, that's completely yours alone, and you use that to bring something that brings material benefit to many people, yourself and others. And that is a, a, that is a part of your worship. Okay? Now, <clears throat> so good, God took continual pleasure from his work. So there is a spiritual legitimacy in job satisfaction. And God wants you to recognize that and appreciate it because you, you know, there are many, many hindrances for you enjoying things. 69%, relatively recent survey in South Africa, 69% of people don't enjoy their work. Now there are many reasons for that. Sometimes they haven't developed their full potential. Sometimes they've got a brain they're not using it. Sometimes they're just having to make ends meet and just do what the first thing that comes to their hands, and that's really what they feel they have to do. They've lost sight of the, of the calling of God upon their lives, so they're, they're just working for the money and for a difficult boss. <coughs> but all of those things are hindrances, so God has to help us get past that so we, uh, we, we can find satisfaction 
things that we do. Okay? And then we see God rested. Now, I've indicated why I believe that's in the scripture. Now, God didn't rest because he, he said, goodness gracious, that was a bit of a stretch putting that giraffe together. You know, I need to sit down and have a break. <coughs> you know, um, he, he <laughs> you know, I got a little tired from pushing up the Himalayas, so I'm going to sit down and have a pause. No, he, he rests from his work because he's taking satisfaction and he's having a break and he wants to let us know that we need to rest. So, so God rested even though he doesn't need to because he wants to set an example of ordered work and the, the cycle or the rhythm of work and Sabbath. And then finally we see, goes on, this working of God doesn't stop in Genesis 2. Now Jesus says in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, verse 17, My father is working until now, now I myself am working. And he talks regularly about the work that his father's given him to do. Chapter 17, he says, I've already completed the work that you've given me to do, which was primarily, he was referring to raising up his disciples to carry on after he left because he hadn't yet gone to the cross. Many, many of us think the reason why Jesus came was to die on the cross and rise from the dead. No, he wanted to raise some kingdom citizens. He started a revolution because he was a new king coming to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. And he wanted to leave those who could continue the overthrow. Right? So when he says... I have completed the work you've given me to do. He knows full well he's, the cross is around the corner and resurrection is going to follow. But he said, now I have, I have raised these men and they will continue what I've started. And the revolution had begun. Right? And we, it's important that we get this because kingdoms conflict. Countries may make peace for a while. Europe has harmony now. But believe me, there were many years when they were fighting one another across borders and over boundaries for years. Thousand years. More than a thousand years. Goes back to Rome. Two thousand years. Conflict. So kingdoms conflict. Jesus, when he uses the word kingdom and the word apostle, he wasn't talking kind of super spiritual out there somewhere one day. He was talking about here and now. My kingdom, my father's, my father's way of doing things, that which is in heaven is coming to earth, and these kingdoms will be overthrown. Right? And you and I are a part of the overthrow. So our work's important because it's a part of your worship and it's how you take the goods that God has given to you and you bring kingdom expression to them and that is your worship, amongst other things. Right? Now, 
So those are the, that's God's work. So he creates, you create. His is slightly different, but you're still creating. Right? B, he takes continual pleasure from what he does. He says it's good. And C, he rested. But he's continuing to work, and now we work, and Jesus continues to work. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Does that work? Anybody prayed through the night? That's work, isn't it? There's a sacrifice in intercession. The giving of self, giving of spirit, a giving of energy, a giving of laying down of your own agendas, of taking up the concerns and the burdens of others, of nations and peoples, of Simon and his friend praying for the nation. That's, that's work. <coughs> now, what about Adam's work? We'll quickly look at that, and then we'll have a pause. First of all, we'll have a look at the good work that God gave Adam to do, and then we'll have a bit of a break. Chapter 2, verse 15 <coughs> tells us that God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it, or to bring culture to. Uh, as I said earlier, in the Septuagint, again, that word cultivate or culture, <coughs> to bring culture to something, has, has a couple of very important applications that stem from it, in our, even in our English language today. Um, oikos, which means community, nomos, which means to name, or is that of the household, the laws, name, or to, is the rules of. So oikos nomos, or economy. Now economists, they look at the rules of the household, don't they? <coughs> that means how, how the, the countries operate, how the economy and the wealth, and the well-being of the country functions. And then ecology also comes from the same, same word that we get culture from which looks at the laws of, of nature <coughs> and how different ecosystems harmonize and correlate and work together or conflict with each other. So <coughs> Adam was given a task. He was placed in a garden and noticed this wasn't the whole earth. It was Eden. It was a bounded or walled or hedged space. God doesn't give you unlimited freedoms. He gives you boundaries that he wants you to operate in. And one of the, the big lessons I've had to walk through is learning what boundaries God's placed on my life. Because when we start out the Christian journey, we, we tend to think we can do anything for Jesus because he can do anything. And therefore, to be faithful to him, we've got to, we've got to have a big vision. But actually, God places clear restrictions upon each one of us. He's given you certain talents, but not others. Right? He's placed you in a particular country, but you're not a universal citizen. You have limitations on what you can accomplish and what you can do. Limited strengths. Limited emotional capacities. Right? So... It's important to come to terms with some of these things, otherwise you end up in burnout, don't you? Because you try and be things you're not. 
and the church, beloved, is completely full of people who either don't know what they are but just come along on Sunday and sit in a pew, or who are trying to be things they aren't. And that leads to all kinds of problems because if you put in the energy to do something you're not, you have to sustain it with more energy. And you put other people under all kinds of pressure to accomplish the things that you are feeling that you should be doing but aren't called to do, and, and then it just ends up in, uh, well, human effort, doesn't it? So God had to deal with all of these things, which was part of my crisis time, right? When I learned some important lessons about the ways of God in this. Secondly, so he's asked to culture. Now, culture has a number of things about it, doesn't it? We've got various cultures, not just white to black, but within the black communities. You've got, and language is a part of culture, isn't it? History art, expression, how we order ourselves, the more mores of a particular group of people, part of its culture, what works for us, and how we, how we order and organize our communities and our, and our living together and the arrangements that we have. It's all a part of culture, isn't it? And it's all different. So God puts Adam and he says, cultivate, bring bring some culture to this. Now, this is very interesting to me because God often does things that are good but not complete. Now, he says this garden's good, didn't he? But it's not perfect. It's not complete. Because he puts Adam in it and he says, I want you to do something about this. I want you to bring something out of it. There's another example where God does something like that. It's good but not complete. It was Jesus. He was walking on the seashore in his resurrected body and the disciples have gone fishing. They went back home. After the trauma of crucifixion and running away and the sheepishness and the shame and the fears that they carried, they decided to go back to the one thing they knew they could do, fish. So I often go when we failed. We go home. Right? So they're out in this boat and they fished and they haven't caught anything all night again. <laughs> the last time they climbed into that boat, they also hadn't caught anything all night. <laughs> and Jesus tells them to let down their nets on the other side. Do you remember that one? Well, anyway, there's Jesus. He's on the seashore and these disciples have been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything bloke shouts out, cast your nets on the other side for a catch. And then they catch so many fish they can't count. And their their ship starts to sink. And Peter jumps into the water and rushes to the shore because John has clearly identified who this voice is. And so they come to the shore and there's this fire. You remember the story, don't you? There's a fire, and there's some fish on it. But there are not enough fish. Because Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. He could have easily had enough fish on that fire. I mean, he just looked at these fish as they swimmed past and summoned them, and they gutted themselves as they came out the water and, and landed on the fire, just ready, just ready, to be, just ready for, the, for the eating. Where he got the fire from, we don't know. He kind of, kind of looked intensely at a tree and, 
it became charcoal and there's the fire you know we don't know where but he he sets up this fire he gets these fish but he doesn't get enough deliberately because he then says to them bring some of the fish that you've caught of course they hadn't really caught any but they'd used their muscles and they'd obeyed, uh, obeyed his voice and they'd responded to him and out of that came a whole catch. So they then bring some of their fish and they add it to his breakfast. God often does things in part because you are a son of God. And he wants to share his work with his son and his daughters. It's really important that you understand this. Because otherwise we ask God to do things that he's told us to do. <laughs> Have you ever tried that one? You know, things aren't going quite so well and we, you know, it's got to be the enemy so we blame him and poor old Satan, he gets it in the neck again. But anyway, it's not, you know, it's, it's not him. It's just that God is allowing things to be a little bit difficult because he wants you to learn something about your creative purpose. And he wants you to add your work to his work to accomplish something. Amen or oh me. So if you can pray and fast all night for God to step in and do something, but if he's saying you do it, then you better do it. And don't go and ask a prophet for a word. <coughs> because actually God wants you to hear, and he wants you to do. Amen? Or oh me? <coughs> Amen. Right. So, <coughs> he was to cultivate this garden. He was to be God and keep it. <coughs> so he was to protect it, which he didn't do. Which is why when Ad, uh, the sa Satan deceived Eve, God asked Adam, where were you? Because it was Adam's task to protect this garden. Right? <clears throat> so they were then also to be carers and stewards. So he, he was given the task of naming all the animals. Wasn't he? Now, beloved, I don't know how big that garden or how many animals there were, but there are approximately 250,000 species of insect on it. There are over 12,000 species of bird on earth. How many of those were in Adam's garden, I don't know. But if there are any biologists here, believe me, getting the families right, getting the genus, genus right, getting, putting these, these animals in order and giving them all names was work. And it was bringing order to a garden. Because when you name something, you have a measure of authority over it. You bring it into subjection. You make it part of your own. So when you name a child and you bring them into your family, it's a part of a household, right? To make them our own. So they're not just amorphous, nebulous, and no-name brand, right? They're our own. So he had to name these animals. Then they were told to be carers and stewards so this creation, this creation is our stewardship. Now this is such an important concept, and I, you know, I can be, I can speak quite boldly now because I'm English. <laughs> but beloved, you, wonderful black folk, 
you were, were deprived of land. And in your townships, you had no sense of responsibility or stewardship because it wasn't yours. So there was all kinds of rubbish and piles of this and that. I went to one of what was one of the leading colleges, high school colleges in this country, just this trip, south of Durban, Adams Mission. And Kazama went there to school. It was started in the late 1800s by American missionaries who pulled out early in the 1990s. And they're still a high school. But lots of the buildings where the American missionaries lived are just in complete disrepair. One of the most shocking things was there was a building, a, a dormitory, that had been opened by Nelson Mandela in 1994, which was co almost already completely abandoned. People were, one or two people were living in it, but no students. Because there wasn't a sense of ownership of responsibility and God wants us to recognize that we have a stewardship for the earth what it looks like and what we do with it and its resources is our responsibility that's why the whole of creation groans waiting for the revealing of who the sons and daughters of God to work in it and to take responsibility for it so that it looks good and finds health and life again. So that climate change can be reversed. So that issues of waste and waste treatment and plastic pollution can be uh, <coughs> transformed. Because God wants the creativity to come out of your mind and our mind so that we can actually do something about the problems that we so the kingdom of heaven isn't just there one day we'll talk about that it's here and now and it means transformation of our world in every sphere from broken marriages to broken bodies to a broken world and to a polluted and corrupted world amen or oh me so those of you running a company social responsibility projects really important Transform your region, your communities, because God wants to make an impact upon the areas in which we live. <coughs> so we are then stewards of creation, and we are to enjoy it with him. <coughs> now, <coughs> sorry, I'm just coughing a bit here. So Adam was to take pleasure in a job well done, just like God did. And there is one thing else that I want to say before we have a short break. We need to learn to work from rest, not for leisure. What was the first day of Adam's life? It was a day of rest. Before God gave God Adam any job, <coughs> chapter 1, he created him male and female, he created them in his image. And then it says, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, or cultivate and rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, and over 
every living thing that walks on the surface of the earth. The first thing that God calls us to do is to work from a place of rest and blessing. God blessed Jesus before his ministry began. This is my son whom I love in whom I'm well pleased. Before he had preached a message other than his work and caring for his family, before he healed any sick bodies or raised any dead. Blessing. So we work from rest and from blessing, not for it. This should transform the way you work. Because you come from a place of having received something that God's given you. Not striving to achieve something that you hope to get one day. Most of the world work for a salary and for leisure and escape. Leisure is not rest. I know people who slave away to have two weeks holiday in Bali or Thailand or wherever. You know the ones? And they're working and working and working and trying and, and they, they are working for leisure. That can be a hard task. God wants you knowing that you have a resource and a privilege and a, a resource and, a, and a, a position of authority and grace which will equip you to accomplish everything that God's called you to do in your world. Amen. So, <clears throat> beloved, that's the first session. Ten past. Can we be back in? grab yourself something to drink at the back but I'm going to start at 25 past by that clock on the wall over there. <coughs> Is that good? And uh, and then we again we have a look at uh, how man's work changed as a result of the fall. Okay, below, let's take our seats. <coughs> Simon, do you need to say anything further? You good? Announcements later, okay. So, thus far we've been having a look at God's work from Genesis 1 and 2 and man's work from Genesis 2. It is important to understand that that God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. And the, 
his wife was ideally going to help him with the job. <laughs> but he... But... <clears throat> he listened to a few of the wrong voices. At a rather crucial moment, he listened to his wife and not to God. And a number of things came as a result of listening to Satan rather than listen, obeying God, um, which we'll have a look at in just a moment. But a part, a part of, of understanding Adam's work is understanding the nature or the contrast between what we commonly call work and vocation. Now, the word vocation has, has come to have a number of different meanings in English. You know, when I was at school, <clears throat> certain people had, certain professions had vocations. And often, you know, it was thought that, well, you know, they get a certain value from the quality or the usefulness or the purpose of the work they do. And therefore, we really don't need to pay them quite as much like nurses and teachers, right? Where there is a sense of a calling to a people. Nurses, the sick, or doctors to the sick, um, <clears throat> teachers to, to the education of young people. But we need to understand that every Christian has a vocation. The word vocation comes from Latin, voce, voice. God calls you. He gives you a vocation. And it has many expressions some of which will be related to kind of church life in the broadest sense of the word, right? Some and most will be what you do nine to five, week by week. It's all a part of your vocation. And there is no vocation that is illegitimate. If God's placed the creativity, the resource, the capacity, the vision, the passion in your heart, it needs to find expression. Because as you express it, it reveals something of who God is. So one vocation isn't more spiritual than another. We'll get onto this when we get to strongholds. But this is very important. That your vocation has a number of different expressions, including your work, but it will be witnessed in how you lead in any environment, how you raise your family, how you reach out to your neighbors, how you have a small group in your home. All of this is a part of your vocation. And your work isn't done on your own. We'll get to that too, but too many Christians go to work alone. You aren't at work alone. I guarantee there are Christians from other churches in your workplace. Find them. It doesn't matter they're not a part of his people, every nation. They may be Anglican, they may be Catholic, they may be, they may be anyone, but get them together because God wants to transform that place of work he wants it to prosper. He wants that company to have more money to train its employees better, to employ new people, to 
develop its product range so it has more influence, so it can take, have a larger social responsibility footprint. Amen? So, you know, all these things we will touch shortly. Here's, here's a quote by a woman called Dorothy Sayers, who was a Cambridge lady, <coughs> professor, colleague of, of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and others. You've heard of them? Tolkien, you know him? Yeah, I think you might know Tolkien. He was a Catholic and uh, had a love for God all his life. But Sayers said this, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result the secular work of the world is turned purely to selfish and destructive ends. And that the greater part of the world's workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? When God began to speak to me, about work, <clears throat> he just reminded me that work consumes about 40% of a person's life. There's only one activity that even competes, and that's sleep. If you include education and preparation for work and travel to and from work, it consumes at least 40% of the average person's life. And yet, how many messages have you heard on this subject? So, we tend to understand that we, we have in past. We're changing, aren't we, Simon? We're changing. But, you know, we used to think that the church was a building with a spire and a bell and a clock. And then something happened in Europe called the Charismatic Movement, and we realized that actually the church is, is not just in those sorts of buildings. So that when we say we go to church, we don't just mean the, the tall building with a spire like, like the end here, churches here, right? <clears throat> we could might also mean meeting in a school, right? So we then saw the church as a meeting, usually on a Sunday morning. That's now church, Right? But actually the pilgrimage hasn't, can't stop there because the church isn't a meeting. It's the gathering of believers wherever they are where two or three meet in my name. So we need to begin to think around getting our heads, deconstructing our ideas because it's this pilgrimage, this journey. So we're now going to church but it's not just a, a building, it's now not just a meeting. It's wherever I might meet with a like-minded believer agreeing over one thing together before God. And it could be in my boardroom. It could be out in the felt somewhere where I'm testing for water. It could be behind you know, my desk or in my, in my bucky as I go to do some building work. It doesn't matter where it is. It's the gathering of the people of God. And into those environments, God wants to presence himself. And he wants to honor 
your coming to Him and reveal something of your, of your capacity, of your vocation in and through the work you do, do together. So, come, just a, f- a few fruits or blessings that came from Adam's work and come from our work. Work is used by the Spirit of God to mature and sanctify us. It unlocks God's goods in creation so our needs may be supplied. Right? It brings into our communities the peace and dignity of God. Our work is designed by God to fulfill us. And that includes all work, whether spiritual or not. God wants it to fulfill you and to complete you. Now, and that doesn't matter what kind of work. It could be paid or voluntary. It could sport, recreation. And uh, it could be any kind of work that you're engaged in. It's to fulfill you. It's to draw something out of you that others haven't been able to see before. Now, when Adam sinned, there were certain consequences. And most particularly, to work. We tend to think that work only comes into the Bible in Genesis 3. But as I've tried to show you, (laughs) work is God's original purpose. And it's eternal. Jesus is still working. So, beloved, when you... Heaven isn't just about sitting around on a cloud with a harp. It's again going to be extracting your goods to bring dominion, to bring order, to cultivate, and to bring culture and life. Here, where restoration needs to happen, but the whole universe that we glimpse from time to time. Other planets, other places, we we just don't know what future may hold in terms of transforming the universe with the glory of God through your work and mine. But we see three things in the results of the fall in Adam's work. First of all, the ground was cursed. This is the first aspect of the consequence of Adam's sin. The ground was cursed. So the ground no longer automatically resuscitates itself. You need to sow into it. You need to plant particular crops that can return nitrogen to it. You need to to fertilize it, whatever else you need to do. It, It is not an unlimited resource. You need to care for it. You can't overgraze it, right? Because you lose millions of tons of topsoil, which is where all the richness of the soil really is. So you, you have to treat it with some respect and care. So no longer was this work a simple process of just digging a hole and planting a seed or digging out this or plucking a fruit off a tree. Now Adam has to put some more effort in and more thought. There's now resistance. So he has to overcome the resistance of cursed ground. Now again, throughout Africa, that's one of our problems. We tend to think it's an unlimited resource, that the earth will go on producing grass for our cattle, and we can graze it as much as we want. You cannot. 
you destroy it. And then once you've lost it, you won't get it back very easily, right? So we need to be careful of the things that God's given to us and mindful of the fact that there is resistance and it's not quite so straightforward as it used to be. <clears throat> so, second point in terms of what happened to the work of Adam. Till, which Adam was commanded to till and to keep the soil, becomes toil. So that which was fairly straightforward for Adam and easy and didn't exert very much effort on his part, now he has to toil over. And indeed, in the Bible, he toiled all his life. So there was never a time where he could just stop Otherwise, the food would run out. When God wanted to demonstrate something of heaven on earth through Israel, he told them to have a seven-year Sabbath for the land. Right? A seven-year rest. Remember? Seven day for God, he had a rest. Seven-year rest for the land. And he said, now I'm going to make sure that heaven shines on earth here because your trees, your fruit trees, your arable fields, they're all going to produce enough grain for you in the sixth year and fruit for you in the sixth year, and your sheep will produce enough young for you in the sixth year that you won't have to do any work on the seventh year. But that does not normally happen, does it? <clears throat> that was because God was wanting to show something of his favor upon Israel and how it is in heaven, how it was in Genesis 2 not Genesis 3, and how it will be in Revelation 22. There will be more than enough, and there will be seasons of great abundance, so we don't have to toil so much. So toil, tilling became toiling, so there was a sorrow to it. There was, by the sweat of his brow, there was hard work, and it was continuous and always needing attention. And there was, there was hardship and difficulty. That's the second point. Thirdly, there were thorns and thistles. How many of you know that you do not have to plant weeds? Somehow, <clears throat> weeds always know when you want a piece of ground just for a particular crop. Because they always spring up in advance, don't they? You don't have to plant weeds. So Adam was continually pulling up thorns and thistles and weeds, like we have to. There weren't weeds and thorns and thistles in the way that we have them today. Alien vegetation didn't exist in Eden. You didn't have black wattles sucking all the water out of your, out of your waterways and out of your headwaters. And, you know, misuse of the land and overgrazing and all these things. So, so all this then, weeds and thorns take up, take up necessary space. And they take time and sometimes great effort to pull them up, don't they? And there's some particularly nasty weeds around, which put tap roots down by about a meter. And most people just come along and pull the top off. But you know, you know exactly what's going to happen, don't you? Yeah, 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 you've got it. That's weeds. They need to be removed before the crops can grow properly. 
So this is what happened to Adam's work after the fall. Remember, work is in the Bible from God to forever. <laughs> from Genesis 1, forever. We'll always be working. right? But there were certain consequences that came as a result of Adam's rebellion against God, which I have listed there. So <clears throat> we see then that in this, in this journey that, that God and Adam help us see that the Lord wants to take your strengths, your capacities, which he calls your vocation. He doesn't call it just your work or your job, right? And he calls it your vocation. And you're not working for money. My goodness, this is so important. You're not just working for your employer. Who gives you the vocation? We're working for God. And if we're working for God, we have to be willing to go on a journey sometimes to find other sources of provision. Now, this is not an easy thing. And he doesn't call all people to this. But there are times when he wants you for a specific task. So he wanted Elijah for a task. So he prepares Elijah in Gilead, which was the area that was east of Jordan. And he sends him to Ahab in chapter 17 of the book of First Kings. And he says, I have come from standing before the Lord. By my word, there will not be rain in this land, unless I say. Now, we don't all have calls like that, do we? But we all have a vocation. And sometimes God knows, in your vocation, that you need a source of supply that isn't going to come from natural sources. It's not going to come from your boss or from your company. And then he wants you to trust him that he's got ravens. Now, I, I love the way God takes symbols that we normally associate with the devil and hell. <laughs> so, you know, God couldn't care two straws who uses rainbows. He's going to use them for the rest of his days. There's one around the throne. You know, he doesn't care who hijacks the rainbow. Nor does he care who hijacks the ravens. So he says, I'm going to send my ravens somewhere. They're going to go to Cherith. And Elijah would have known where Cherith was because it was from the part of the country that he came from. Cherith means a deep gorge because God wanted to hide him there. And he says, I'm going to send my ravens to Cherith. That's where the supply was. That's where the food went. Sometimes we have to be willing to go from where we are to where God's providing the resource. So for some people, not necessarily all, but for definitely, in my case, much of my time and efforts are spent in nations where they can't resource me. 
I came here this time with my wife. We flew. I don't fly expensively. I fly, you know, I do fly directly, but I don't fly expensively. But it's unlikely that we will get sufficient resource from the various offerings that are taken up for us or the ministry we do in this country to pay for our air tickets. We're flying down to East London this afternoon. I'm doing more work there. And, and I, I, you know, I started off in a township south of Nat Durban in Ilovo. You know, the dear people, they don't, simply don't have the resource. So I have, to, I have to trust God that he's got some ravens. Right? And there will be times in all your life where he wants to test you who's really your supply. Right? Because he wants to be your supply. He doesn't want your paycheck. Because guess what? He may want to give you more than that. Or he might, may, may want to stretch your understanding of where your vocation extends to. Because it may not just be nine to five every day of the week. It may be a different community, or it may be another area, or it may be into your home with neighbors. And some, some of your vocation needs to be worked out through that. And then who knows, maybe God just provides through that too. Amen? Because we, we tend to limit too much where we get our resources from, and then we, then we don't know how to receive the fullness of that which Father has for us. Now, I don't talk a lot about these sorts of things because sometimes it's a really difficult journey for people. And by no means does he call everyone to live like Elijah. <clears throat> You'll notice that even in Elijah's life, the stream runs out of water. So what does Elijah do then? Well, God says, I've got another source of supply. It's a widow. And I'm sure Elijah's thinking, oh, great. This is finally a bid. A wealthy widow in, in Sidon. This is just what I need. Oh, somebody who's really just, you know, got a bit of resource and she's more than happy to give me space and a comfortable bed to sleep on because I've been out here in the bush lying on this rock for the last X months. And what happens? He finds this widow and then he has to multiply the, the last meal she's got to feed her whole family. That's not really kind of provision that I want God to give to me. Because again, again, God gives some and asks Elijah to bring the rest. He did some of the task, had the woman prepared, and made sure she had just enough that he had resource to multiply. So don't just think it's one or two places in the Bible. This principle works throughout Scripture. God is, what he does is good, but it's often not complete. Because he wants to share the work with his sons and daughters. And who got the glory from the multiplication of that food? And the son, the widow's son being healed. Hmm? God, didn't he? So... <clears throat> So, beloved, then we, we see then that, that God works, we work, we have vocations. He sets you apart for particular purposes. And, you know, I'm sure some of you have a far greater capacity ever than I, than I do for making money. I know people who are really gifted at just doing certain tasks that I could never, 
ever attempt. Now, there were times in times past when I thought I should have a go too. But I've learned not to pick up that plow because it's not mine to pull. Learning the Eden that God's placed me in is so important. He's given you a bounded garden. Don't look over and try and be, cultivate somebody else's. Because it might not be your call or your capacity. Now, the, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, you don't learn this just from one lecture. <laughs> you don't learn this from a textbook. You have to journey a journey and recognize when you walk through challenges and difficulties where you've stepped beyond the boundaries of God's grace for your life and where you've ended up in a place he hasn't called you to be. I know a few people, just a few, who knew from a very young age what they wanted to do. Very young age. No, some are highly successful. One of my cousins knew he wanted to be a potter at age 10. Started making pottery and now he's one of the most well-known artists in Britain. He has such a, developed such a brand that he now writes books on the back of his name. And people buy the books because they bought his pots. But I don't know many people like that. Most of us struggle to find what we are through many years of beating our heads of being what we aren't. Right? And that's fine. But don't give up, because your vocation will become clearer and learn to write things down. It does help. So, <clears throat> what I want to do now is I want to have a look at how Satan isolates believers in the marketplace. And we've got, uh, well, I'll stop at about, uh, about five past... Yeah, we'll stop at about 12, uh, 11. We'll stop at about 11 in about 10 minutes. I was, go I was when, I, when I went through this crisis, God just began to speak to me about work. And I, I really felt that I wanted to restore some of the things that I'd failed to do. So I gathered a small group of professional and business people together to meet once a month. <coughs> And we would talk about stuff that you never get a message on on Sunday morning. Things like climate change, does it matter? Or uh, ethics of business competition? Or leadership Jesus style? Or, you know, all kinds of subjects. Or work. And I got people in, even including from here, like Dorian and Tendai and others came along. <clears throat> and they shared a bit of their own journeys, and people would, would meet and pray, and we would just share around these sorts of themes over a breakfast and, and, and take time together. And as I, was, as I was doing this, God just spoke to me one day, very clearly. Now, please, when I say God just spoke to me one day, don't think that he always speaks to me like this every day. 
Because <laughs> there is a danger when you are in my position that I can share things and you can think, goodness, he's so spiritual. God just speaks to him every day. I mean, that guy's amazing. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> but he doesn't always speak to me every day. I, I put lots and lots of hours of reading the Bible and da 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 and waiting on God, and he doesn't speak to me at all. But every now and again, he just speaks to me, right? Right? You got it? So one day, he spoke to me. And he said, do you realize the spirit attacks that attacks Christians in the marketplace is the spirit of Amalek? So I said, no. What's the spirit of Amalek? <clears throat> so I decided to read up about the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were a particularly nasty group of people. They were a, a semi-nomadic tribe that lived on the edge of the desert, and they were relatives of Esau, uh, one of the sons or grandsons of Esau was a chap called Amalek. And um, <clears throat> they had a, a, a sincere and profound hatred of Israel. And they occur at various places in the Bible. And I'm just going to read a couple of passages where they occur. The first one I want you to, to turn to if you've got a Bible of some sort here. You don't have to. Well, you can just listen to me. But it's in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. So this is what God says to Israel when, through the mouth of Moses shortly before he dies. Just a bit of biblical knowledge here. The book of Deuteronomy, the last of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, was a summary that God told Moses to write of all that God had done for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. So it starts off with him calling them out of, of Egypt and that they've stayed long enough at this mountain and he gives them the, the laws and then it's the summary of their journey and some of the laws and then he prays for the nation. And he's reminding them of certain things that happened. So he then says in chapter 25, verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and, did not fear, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about that when you, the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives to you as an inheritance to possess, that you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you must not forget. Now, what, did, what happened? Well, you recall in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, that there was a battle. You know the story. You know, there was Moses, and he went up the mountain with Aaron and Hur, and they lifted up his arms. And Joshua, with the rest of the nation and the, the military guys, who were the, over, the men over, over 20, they fought against an enemy. Who was that enemy? Amalek. And it tells us in Exodus that they were, therefore, that they were the only enemy that attacked the nation of Israel in the wilderness, in their place of vulnerability. And we see from this chapter, but also from the passage in, in, in Exodus, that they attack a particular group of people. The, t the weary, 
the women and the children, the stragglers at the back. So as I began to see this, I recognized that too many Christians go to work alone. They're stragglers at the back of the camp. They know their church on Sunday when they're all in community and they're all lifting hands and they're all jumping around and saying, Hallelujah, Jesus, and listening to good messages and, and eat, drinking coffee afterwards, hopefully good, good coffee like you've got here. <coughs> good coffee, yeah. But, um, but, you know, on Monday, they go to work and they're a straggler. And Amalek's trying to take them out. So I began to think about this. Let me just complete this because this story doesn't finish. So the nation of Israel, they, they defeat Amalek in that battle, but we are told that the people that Amalek had attacked. The stragglers at the back of the camp and the women and the children. So the next time we, we see a, a, a significant story about Amalek is in the life of King David. And he has, <clears throat> well, you know, he didn't have the, absolutely the most perfect journeys to the, to the throne, on one occasion, he went and sided with the Philistines because he just got so tired of running away from Saul. Note to self, not a good idea. Don't go and side with the Philistines, you know, and don't return to Egypt. Now, that's the other thing that Israel always wanted to do. So, note to self, don't side with the Philistines. But anyway, he goes to the Philistines, and, and he's staying in a town called Ziglag, which is on the edge of the desert with his wives and his children and all these things. And so he takes all his army and they go off to fight with the Philistine army against Israel. But the Philistines refused to let them, which was a good thing because God intervened, right? And so they then come home. But when they get home, their camp has been attacked at Ziglag. Guess who attacked it? The Amalekites. And guess who they took? The women and the children. Again. So then David goes after them, pursues them, and defeats the Amalekites. And a little later on, we see another story of Saul who's told to take out all the Amalekites. You remember that story? And he leaves the king because he wants the prestige. I've captured this kingdom. Here's the king. But God told him to slay them all. And he, of course, he kept all the, the livestock and the sheep and the goats and the camels. Well, because, you know, his second name was Jacob. No. <laughs> no, he, he wanted the wealth. I don't want to be disparaging to your former president, but, you know, that's what kings all do. That's what kings all do. They want to accrue wealth and resource. So, anyway... <clears throat> So, the, we see this characteristic of the Amalekites. Now, God just said to me, the, the church has too many strongholds of the enemy in their head. And that's why Christians go to work alone. And then I began to think about what these would be. <clears throat> and, you know, a stronghold in England, it's... You know, I don't know if you've ever been to the Zimbabwe ruins. That would be a good stronghold in southern Africa. But in England, in the Bronze Age and in the early Iron Age, all kinds of forts were built around hilltops. And they would build this massive great fort, and they would dig out a huge trench all the way around the top of the 
hill, and then they would put a palisade above that, and, and they would make it as difficult as possible for people to capture the, hill, the stronghold. And they could stay there for years because often they chose hills which were, were made of soft rock, like the chalk downs, South, South England. And then they would be able to sink a well to the bottom of the chalk, and then they would have water, and they would, you know, have their livestock. You've got enough pasture land at the top there, at least to hold out for a while. And um, so, but if you if you were invading enemy, or an invading army, you had to take out the strongholds. If you just thought this looks a bit tough, we'll leave this one and go, you know, catch us some of the plain, they would attack your supply lines. They would do typically what Amalekites do, attack the weak and the weary and the supply lines that are feeding your army. So you have to take out the strongholds. So you and I have a responsibility to pull out the strongholds. And there are, there are a number of strongholds. I have listed five. And we'll start with the first one, and we'll deal with the other four in the last session. The first one is we have a flawed missiology. Now, by that I mean we don't understand our mission. <clears throat> we failed, as I implied earlier, to have an understanding that Jesus wanted us to get, that we're not here to build the church, we're here to extend and expand the influence of the kingdom. In fact, we have spent a great deal of time doing or trying to do what God promised he would do, and we've ignored the thing that he's told us we must get on with. So he promised Jesus personally, he said, I will build my church. Who? Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, right? I will build my church. God the Father says, I'm going to build it through Christ the Son. I'm going to build my church. I'm responsible. I'm going to do the church building, bring the communities together, but you have a message <coughs> to get on with establishing and expanding the influence of the kingdom, which means preaching the gospel, developing the goods of your life, pursuing the vocation that God has given to you, healing the sick, praying in your places of work to see transformation, coming against wrong spiritual influences and wrong practice where you see it with courage because you need to find team there. And if you're isolated, you can never have the commanded blessing. Never. When does the commanded blessing come? Where brothers dwell together in unity. There I will command the blessing. How many people have ever prayed for you in your place of work? Ten? One or two? Vast majority of you go to work alone, right? And you do your job, you're faithful in it, I'm sure, you try to be a witness where you can, 
but you don't have agreement. So God has to help us address some of these things. Now, I, I, you know, I could share this story later, but let me just share it now. <coughs> I, I met a bloke in a church in Germany called Thomas, and he was in a vineyard church. And after one meeting, I was chatting to him and his wife. We went out for some lunch, I think. And, and uh, so I asked him, has anybody prayed for you in your place of work? And he said, well, no, I'm sure my pastor prays for me. And I said, has that, have, have they prayed in your office? And he said, no, never. Now, I don't know what it is, but there is something special about being in situ, in the place. I find when I go to New Nations, God often gives me a word for that country when I set foot on it. Not when I'm praying from a distance, but when I intentionally set about going there to, 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 to bring some message to a people. And so I, I said to them, what do you do? Thomas said to me, I'm a senior manager for Valio. Now, I don't know if you know what Valio is, but it's a large international car, manu car part manufacturer, French. <clears throat> so I said, well, how come you're a part of a French company? He said, well, they bought our company out, and there are about 40,000 employees. So I said, well, what's your responsibility in this company? And he said, well, I, I have three divisions, two manufacturing plants, one here in Germany and one in Hungary, and I have a research and development plant. And at the moment, we're researching how to create cars that can read road signs. Because he said, most, many, many people lose their lives through falling asleep at the wheel, especially in larger countries like South Africa or America. I think it's 35% of people who lose their lives on American roads fall asleep at the wheel. So he was designing a car that could read the, white, the, the yellow lines down the side of the road, because in all American highways, you, they've, got a, they've got a line that goes... And so if, if a truck drives over the line, it'll alert the driver and, and sometimes com compel them to stop so they can get some rest. So, <clears throat> so he was working on all of this. So I said to him, so you've never had anybody pray with you in your office? And he said, no, never. He said, I'm sure my, my pastor prays, but he, he, I don't really know. I'm not... I'm not, you know, I'm sure he does. He says he does, but nobody's ever been in my office. So I said, how many employees in your three plants? He said, two and a half thousand, 2,300, he said. So he's responsible for 2,300 people. That's influence, isn't it? So I'm trying to help him connect with his vocation. So I then said to him, well, can I suggest that you get three or four believers to pray on a regular basis in your office or in the boardroom. So I just left it at that. That was it. So I came back a year later and I, I met Thomas again. I'd completely forgotten what I'd advised you to do. You know, I, I do that. So if you get a message from me one year, I can give exactly the same message next year and I'll have completely forgotten the first one. So please understand that God's saying the same thing twice. Because I can prophesy the same thing over the person and completely have completely forgotten what I said the first time. So I, I met him and I, I said, how's it going? 
And he said, oh, it's really going very well. And he said, what you advised me to do, I followed through. And I said, well, what did I advise you to do? And he said, well, you asked me to meet with some people and to pray. So he, I said, well, that's great. How many people do you meet with? And he said, well, I meet with a Catholic. And I meet with two Lutherans. And there's one other from another denomination. And we meet once a week in my boardroom to pray. And he said, I even instructed my PA so that if I'm not there because I travel a lot to the other plants and to the headquarters in Paris and things, he said, I, I ask her to open the boardroom so that they can meet at 5 o'clock on Mondays and pray for 40 minutes. And he said, what was really great is the Catholic got in touch with me the other day and thanked me so much because it was really making his work so much more meaningful. And then I said, well, how has this affected your plant and your production and, and you as a person? And he said, it's been brilliant, he said. It's transformed in my work life. I said, how? He said, well, first of all, our three plants outperformed all the other plants in the entire group. Five people praying for 2,300 people was making a huge difference because they're in agreement and they've got what you call commanded blessing. And then he said, the other thing, I really I found a new boldness. So I said, well, that's great. Tell me about it. How, how, in what way? And he said, well, I was very concerned about some of the language that my senior managers and staff were using. There was a lot of swearing and unpleasant conversation. You know, they're car manufacturers, you know, rough lot, rough lot. You know, I dare say Jesus might have had the same problem with a bunch of fishermen, you know, a rough lot. And um, so he said, well, you know, God gave me this strategy. I said, well, what was it? He said, well, I decided, I felt that God showed, showed to me that I needed to just expose this. So he, he had his PA write out some of the more choice expressions that he had heard out of the mouths of his senior managers. And he, she, she printed it out on A2 and put them all around the boardroom. And then he called a, had the board meeting for his senior staff. And they all walked into this room and all around the wall, weren't these nice, you know, nice every nation pictures about engaging, establishing. There were all these swear and curse words. And he just said this. He said, I really don't like working in an environment where this kind of stuff is being said. And he said, I heard all these things out of your own mouths and I wanted to stop now. Then he got on with the meeting. And he said, he said that immediately brought a change in the entire atmosphere of every plant. People started being more positive. He started hearing good words out of these men's mouths and encouraging things. And it lifted the spirit of every single production plant. Just from five people praying in agreement. So, we're going to stop now, and I might have to continue on a little bit more with some of this first part, but we'll get rid of the rest of the, uh, do the rest of the points later, but um, you've got 
12 minutes break until 25 past, okay? We will run slightly over with this, but you won't mind, will you? We'll go over by about 10 minutes. Thank you, Steve. I just want to mention there is a DVD of this teaching that we're going to make it available uh, in the bookshop because I know there's too much to digest and you want to also maybe process with your uh, connect groups. So that's that. We will have the DVDs available. We'll also make the, the audios available on our podcast. And secondly, uh, I just want to say one of the reasons we do connect groups in the workplaces is for exactly the reason what Steve is talking about. So we can pray for our workplaces. So let's keep doing that. Amen. I saw Dimitri raising his hand that I've prayed with him at his workplace. So all of you, if you want to invite me for coffee, I'm good to go. <laughs> go for it. Enjoy it. Enjoy your coffee. Very good. Thank you. If you want to get a drink, by all means do. But let's, uh, let's get started <clears throat> so that we can roughly, roughly finish on time. I'm, I'm hitting the nail on the head. Wonderful. So our missiology, our understanding of what we're really called to do. Your job is not to call to build a church. Your job is to expand the kingdom. And Jesus said he would build his church. And he's the one who uh, will bring the communities together, wherever they may be. Now, alongside this, we've got a wrong understanding of heaven and hell. So most Christians think that they've been saved. Jesus came to die for your sin, to get you to heaven one day, right? But that's not why Jesus came. That's just one of many reasons why he came. He came to bring a new kingdom. Right? And he came to send down disciples to the nations. And the nations you go to may be your work on Monday, which is also your mission. But heaven isn't just up there one day and or hell down there one day. Heaven is here now. Jesus said, this is eternal life, to know thee the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to be worked out now. And heaven and hell are, well, it's the presence or absence of God's will and purpose. It's the presence or absence of his will and redemptive purpose. So when you go to your work on Monday and you see things that are not working as they should be and and staff members who are who are just not really understanding their purpose and their identity and and vocation, or you see corrupt practice, or you hear negative messages being shared and the ladies gossiping over their coffee. You know, whatever the case may be, that, that isn't what God wants. So heaven is everywhere where things are as God wants them to be. And that includes now, not just in the future. So we have separated our mission from what actually God's called us to do. Because we're waiting to go there one day. Right? So we separate it in space and in time. So everything will be as God wants it to be one day. But actually, Jesus came to bring everything as God wants it to be now didn't he? 
So he went about doing all the things that heaven speaks of. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Their bodies are healed. We raise the dead. The lepers are cleansed. Because none of those things are in heaven. And we want the poor and those who've been sidelined and outcast and set aside or ignored or overlooked, we want them to have a fresh hope. Amen? And that includes people in your workplaces. So God wants to bring heaven to earth in your workplace. Not one day when Jesus returns. Now, because he's here in you. Let me just say this. I just feel a slight diversion here. The word apostle. Jesus didn't come up with that word as some kind of complete original. An apostle was an official in the Roman Empire who had a very particular task. Their task was to accompany the Caesar in his conquests. And he would summon, when the battle had been waging against a foreign enemy, and there was a measure of peace, and well, there was still, you know, maybe conflict, but the land was beginning to be brought under some kind of peace and order, he would summon his apostle. And the apostle would choose a team, which was called an apostolic team. Heard that phrase? And the apostolic team consisted of city planners, architects, lawyers. And they were, they were tasked with finding a city. We have actually Caesar Augustus's instruction to his apostle after conquering Britain. And their task was to find and identify a place where they could build a new Rome. So they would go and they would inspect the area and it, and it contained not just these people but it contained some military capacity. And he would have a couple of sheep ships at his disposal and they would send this, this team with elite troops and with city planners and with architects and their task was to build an amphitheater, a market forum, a place where the Senate could meet, a hypodrome, identify where they could build a bath because the, the Romans loved water because they believed that any water that came out of the ground had healing properties and came, came from the underworld. So they identified a particular city called Londinium. Heard of it? London. And they built a smaller version of Rome there because they wanted their laws, Pax Romana, they wanted peace, they wanted their pleasure and their enjoyment and their entertainment and their, their, you know, their market forums and their, you know, their games and their, all the other things that went with Rome. So there, the task of the apostle was to build a new Rome and extend the influence of the Roman way of doing things. Right? So when Jesus says, I'm calling you as apostles, 
What are they called to do? Just walk around and look handsome? They're called to bring the kingdom. Right? And to make things as they are in heaven on earth. Now, believe me, you also are called. And your mission isn't just, quote-unquote, you know, prophesying or teaching or... Your mission is to transform the world where you touch it. And it may involve and will involve some evangelism, but being an evangelist doesn't make you a missionary. You're all called to evangelize. Where you touch the world. And to build a new Jerusalem with the help and the grace of God. Amen? Because Jesus wants to visit your workplace. And he wants to walk around the desks or up and down the mine shafts and wherever it is, out in nature. He wants to be able to walk with you and say, I'm going to help you make this place as I want it to be. Amen? That is, that's what God's called us to do, right? So our tendency is to separate heaven and hell in terms of time and in terms of space. But heaven and hell are both here, right? And now. Not one day, but they're here and now. So, Jesus' goal is to bring heaven to earth, and that's why he told you to pray as he did. How did he tell you to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is now in heaven. Not one day, not by divine fiat, you know, by the wave of God's hand, but through your work and mine. Whether it's missional in terms of taking teams to Mozambique or missional in terms of you going into your place of work on Monday morning. They're both missions. And one is not more holy than another. Please. That leads me to the next point. Sacred-secular division. Now this comes from our Gnostic roots, and this really is 2,000 years old. So many things that entered into the church, especially in the 3rd and 4th centuries, 5th century AD, were Gnostic in their influences. Augustine, who was one of the primary uh, theologians of church history, was originally a Gnostic. Now I haven't got time to tell you all the good and yet the not so good that came from his writings. But there was a tendency in Gnosticism, well, there was. They, they believed that all material things were irredeemable. That which you could see and touch and taste was, was of this world and could not be transformed. It was essentially corrupted and irredeemable. And that meant, that led certain things to becoming seen to be more spiritual or holy than others. So if you were an architect, you were dealing with material things. That can't be holy. That, can't, that can never make it to heaven because you're dealing with something that's physical and you're dealing with something you can see and taste and touch, 
with the dust on your fingers, that, that will never quite make it. But if you, if you, the architect, decide to become a preacher and you're dealing with things which are quote-unquote spiritual, like men's souls and spirits, well, then you've got a more holy job. That is absolute nonsense. So what we've had in church is we have this kind of idea that certain jobs are more holy than others. And this, you know, this, is, this has really driven my life in times past. This is one of the things that God had to dis, dis unravel in my thinking. Literally, unravel. So we have the, kind of the holiest person you can think of, the most spiritual. Well, you know, they're, 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 they're a missionary with a family and they go off to some New Guinea headhunting tribe. Right? That, that's about the most spiritual you can get, right? You know, we, we think. We think. And, and then you work it all the way down. I don't mind who you are, but you, you get those, then you get those with vocations. They're doing nice work for people who have a need, like doctors and nurses. Well, they, you know, that's, that's a bit closer. And you've got church pastor quite high up there as well, you know, because they're spiritual, right? <clears throat> But down at the bottom, well, I don't know who you have. You have lawyers because they are paid to tell lies. And, you, you know, you, you have politicians who are completely, well, well you know. And, and then, well, then there were some professions that you really shouldn't, you know, encourage at all, right? And you have this hierarchy. But it's complete nonsense. All jobs are spiritual. Even lawyers. All jobs can have a spiritual component, right? And so, all God's work is good's work is good work, regardless of what it is. And if God has given you a sense of calling to something, it is immediately sanctified. And we need people to understand that. So if you are an environmentalist, you need to understand that God has given you a responsibility in creation to restore a world that's been broken and polluted. And that is just as spiritual as the pastor whose church you go to who is restoring souls. Right? And furthermore, you're going to be doing it with others. And I had this conversation. Now, if you're, if you're running a company and you have 20 or 30 employees, they're your congregation. They're the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where does God send the shepherds? Jesus says, I lift up my eyes to the multitudes. There is sheep without a shepherd. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth missionaries, apostles into the harvest. And where is that harvest? They're in your company. So I, I've had at least, well, three or four business people who've come to me and said, Stephen, you know, I've got this business at the moment and, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm working very hard to get to the place where I can, you know, just kind of hand that over to somebody else and, and, and go full time. <laughs> I said, how many, how many people do you employ in your, in your company? Oh, 150. <laughs> whatever it is. And I said, well, 
got to start there. That's your church. If you're not going to be, if you're not responsible with them, bringing them the gospel and making their lives better and empowering them and training them so that they can understand their gifts and calling and vocations better and really be equipped to do the things that actually enrich them and fulfill them in the, in the workplace, then you're not going to do it behind a pulpit. You know the easiest place to hide from God in the world? Behind a pulpit. Because you're doing something where everybody expects you to be spiritual. But many are there, not all, but many, for the wrong reasons altogether. Because they're trying to be spiritual. And they're not actually facing certain responsibilities in their lives that God's wanting them to face. The vocation he's actually given to them. Which may have nothing to do with preaching on a Sunday morning. It may be about training and equipping. It might be about some entrepreneurial flair that they have, which they've never actually managed to discover. It, it, it could be dozens of things that they are called to do. And because they think this is more spiritual, this is what they end up doing. But it's not more spiritual. That is Augustine's lie. Right? And that's been in the church since the second century. So if you think that's going to come out with an altar call, Am I just kind of laying hands on your head? You've got another thought coming. You have a stronghold that needs to be pulled down. And you need to give a bit of thought and exercise in your heart over this because we've had these things wrong largely in church for a long time. All right? So just because you're paid for something doesn't make it unspiritual. We've got this kind of attitude about money, don't we? You know, if you arrive on Sunday morning at your meeting and there's a brand new red Ferrari in the car park, you know, maybe the ladies won't kind of go through the same set of thoughts as men, but there's this brand new, spanking new X-million Ferrari sitting in the car park, parked in Simon Larafolo's parking spot. <laughs> no, he doesn't have a parking spot. You're a good lot here. You don't have some more spiritual than others. But, you know, here you go. And, you know, what are, what are the thoughts that go through your head? Well, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't spend it on a car like that. But, actually, you'd really like a drive, wouldn't you? That's one thought. And then another thought is, goodness me, how did he come into that lot? Must have been playing, must have won the lottery. Right? You have all kinds of ambivalent thoughts because we don't know how to deal with money. So we, we think that because I'm working for money, that's kind of not as spiritual as my going to church on Sunday morning. But actually, they're both just as spiritual. God wants you to redeem money too. Right? By making it, putting it under your feet, making it your servant, 
rather than allowing it to be your master. Amen. So you don't walk away from the red Ferrari jealous. <laughs> sure, I wish I had that kind of money. You, you relax and you know the grace of God and the boundary he's placed around your life and you are content in the metron or sphere that he's given to you. So the third, fourthly, or thirdly, where have we got to? Three. Clergy layer to division. Now this flows straight out of that previous discussion. Because we've got this whole th understanding of Gnostic thinking, we've created this distinction between the clergy and the laity. You know, in, um, in some parts of the world, they really don't have this distinction at all. China, they don't really have this distinction. I met a number of people who've ministered in China. And, you know, they get called in, and it's really, really humbling because they just say, how many, how many people do you have in your church? You know, and then the pastors kind of chat away together, and we've got, oh, got about five million. <laughs> this bloke's come from, you know, congregation of 200 in England. <laughs> oh, between us, we've got about five million. No, it's not many, but, you know, it's growing. Yeah. <laughs> But in, in, in Chinese church, they're not allowed to own property. They're not really supposed to meet in meetings of gatherings of more than 15 people, but they kind of largely ignore that one. And they're not allowed Bible schools. They're not allowed any formal training. That makes them do all the training through discipleship, in situ, in the location, in relationship. And it makes them meet in small, in small groups first and foremost, so everybody gets a go. We all learn. And it stops them thinking about the things that consume too many leaders in this continent. My income, my titles. You know, I haven't got a doctorate, I must buy one. My church. You know, I met, I met, I met people like that. You laugh, I meet them. No, my big building. Uh, God sees nothing in it. And then we tend to think that because, you know, we've got this idea that some jobs are more spiritual than others, um, that, you know, we are all aiming to become clergy. And it leads to an elitism. This continent, really, you pray for your, your dear church leaders up and down the continent. There is an elitism. They're seeking a position. And their identity, beloved, is not in God. It's in their position and in their income and in the number of people they have in their church. And they know nothing of being blessed before they do. Their blessing comes as a result of, of what comes to them the numbers in their church. And Jesus said, if you, have, if you get all that now, you won't have it later. If you get honor from men, you're not getting any from me. Didn't he say that? And so we, we, we have structures that, that lead to this elitism and this status of clergy versus the laity. And it is ungodly. It's idolatrous. 
and it must be torn down. And I would rather people have no titles. How did Paul call himself? Paul Doulos, servant, called as an apostle. So his apostleship was not his title. That was his work, his function. His title was servant. That's the only kingdom Jesus knows. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so must we. And it's in our serving and in our right attitudes and our tearing down of these false divisions that we begin to make some progress. Now, then we have a flawed ecclesiology, which is our understanding of church. So, <clears throat> we know we're church on Sunday morning, don't we? Why do you know you're church? Because we all gather. But let me just tell you this. Let me turn to a verse. Acts 11, 19. John Acts. Okay. Now, what's happened here is that Saul, or who became Paul, has initiated this persecution against the church. And, and lots of people are fleeing Jerusalem. Okay? So it says this. Verse 19, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Now, Kenneth Wiest, who was one of the great Greek scholars of the last century, he translated the word scattered here as those who were sown as seed because it's the same word that's used in Mark 4. Where and the parable of the sower, where the seed is scattered. The sower went out to sow and scattered the seed, and some seed fell on, on the various different types of soil. Right? So, beloved, you need to understand that the church isn't just the church when it's gathered. It's also the church when it's scattered. <laughs> Because you're sown a seed. And in Matthew 13, you have the, the two parables, the two principal parables in that chapter, because there are lots of parables of the kingdom in that chapter. The two principal parables are the parable of the sow and the seed and the parable of the wheat and the tares. Right? And in the sow and the seed, the sower is walking and he's prepared the soil and he's, he's scattering the seed. Scattering. And he tells you where the seed falls. Right? And in that parable, the seed is the word of God. And the ground are different states of the human heart. Got it? Now, the next parable is somewhat different. It has one thing that remains the same, the sower. Jesus remains the sower. He's sowing the seed. But then he takes the ones who've been sown in good soil, and he sows them as sons of the kingdom into the world. And he says, in this world, an enemy comes and he plants tares. And the two grow up together. You remember that? 
And then, the, then his, his helpers, the, the master's helpers, says, shall we, shall we remove the tears? And, and Jesus says, no, let them both grow together. Why? Tears are taking up some of the light, some of the soil, some of the richness of the ground, some of the moisture. Well, the reason was this. You can't separate wheat and tares until the grain emerges. The leaf shape is almost identical. So he's saying the parable of the sower and the wheat and the tares basically is this. He takes those who receive the word and he puts them in his seed bag and he sows them into a world. And where is your world? It's your neighbors and your street and it's predominantly your workplace. Right? Don't you spend more time at work than you do anywhere else, with the possible exception of your bed. So, we see that our ecclesiology has just seen that church is when we meet on Sunday. Nonsense. Church is when you meet any believer in any setting, and you meet intentionally, and you meet around Christ, and his purpose, and you remember him, and you bring him into that environment. So if you are running a company, or in a business, and you have other Christian employees, meet with them, because that then becomes church, in the loose sense, but in, it is, it's a community. And if you're meeting consistently, even if it's once a month, and you're meeting intentionally to pray and to bring something of Christ into that place, not just watching the rugby on a Saturday afternoon, right? You're bringing Christ into the place of work. That, that becomes church. And I don't care where those people come from. They may not all be a part of every nation. They can come from six or seven different congregations around the city. But they all love and know Jesus. And they're uniting around him and the things of the God, things of the kingdom to bring heaven to earth there. Amen? So we've somehow got to get out of this idea. And I, you know, I blame myself as an ex-pastor because you... Pastors can so easily get threatened when, you know, people go and say, I've got a church somewhere else now. <laughs> they go, Ugh. you know, I used to. What? How could I? I've got to have all the good stuff that you hear. You know, it's got to come out of my voice. You know, my, my, God's got to show it to me. How can you dare get something that's, you know, life-giving somewhere else? You know, it's just not allowed. But, you know, this is just nonsense. It's, that's the leader's insecurities. So Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, I'm in the midst. And he did this, he said this, after he gave a teaching about, one of the two, about church, which is about restoring relationship in the community of God. If your brother sins, go and rebuke him. If he doesn't listen, take someone else, a witness, and share, and share your concern, and, 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 and admonish him to improve the way he's living his life. Because you want to restore the relationship, and want to set the church apart 
as being evidently a different type of community. Amen. And then he says, where two or three agree touching anything on earth, it'll be done by my Father who is in heaven. Now, that verse sometimes sticks in every Christian's throat because they really think they've done that and nothing's happened. You know, they've had some crisis. Maybe their business isn't going well or their sickness in the family or their wife is having a struggle, you know, in her pregnancy or something, and you get two or three Christians to agree, and then nothing really seems to change. To be in agreement means, in, he, in Greek, means to be of one soul. So you've got to share hearts, values, lives. You've got to get to know those people. This isn't just kind of a, a quick, oh, let's get together and pray. We need to be in agreement here. You know, we, we, you just need to get into those people's lives a bit. And you can do that at work. You can create a safe place which is what church is, where people can succeed or fail, but they're still loved because their worth isn't measured by what they do, but by who they are and who he is. Amen? Their, their worth is established because blesses, God blesses them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, Coming on, we're making, we're making progress. <clears throat> so we've had a flawed ecclesiology, and this has led, obviously, to denominationalism. I've met people who've said quite frequently, now I can't pray with so-and-so, so-and-so, and so Well, I've got a few people in my company, but none of them would go to every nation. I mean, that's, that's the wrong understanding, denominationalism. Finally, we've had a loss of our understanding, and I have talked about this before of a biblical view of, of vocation and rest. You know, you are called <coughs> not to work for money. You're called with a vocation from God. And that vocation contains a blessing and a provision. And if you're not finding it yet, go on a journey and ask him to help you. If you've got responsibilities financially, don't just give up your work, you know. Be responsible, but go on a journey. And <clears throat> we need, we aren't escaping from work into leisure. We are recognizing that our work is a part of our worship and that it is fundamental to us working out the vocation that God's called us to. And if your vocation and the thing that you're doing doesn't really fully, isn't compatible with your heart, ask God to take you on a journey, submit your life to others, get into relationship so you can become one soul together and make some godly decisions to help you step into something new and different and to trust him for that to emerge and to come forth. But, you know, we, we too frequently in the world today seek to escape from toil into leisure. So you have people with various extreme sport hobbies or 
you know, exotic locations. They go for their holidays. You know, they go to the Berbers in the Atlas Mountains in North Africa, or they, you know, live in a longhouse in Borneo. And they, it's all trying to escape the mundane of life because they haven't found God there yet. And they haven't really felt that I own this work and this is part of my worship and this is part of God's calling upon my life. So, beloved, I, I can pray for you at this point, but I have shared a number of things here with you that, uh, that you may want to ponder anew some more. <laughs> Because I tend to pack my words with plenty of thoughts. And uh, no doubt I've left out one or two things that I could have said. But may I trust that this has refreshed your thinking and enables you to pull down some of the strongholds in your head, which actually, sadly, have often been projected upon you by the church itself, right? And that is, that is sad. So I'm going to take responsibility of that. I'm going to repent on behalf of clergy around the, this nation because you need to be freed to get on with the job that God's called you to do, the vocation that he's given to you and placed in your hand, which may mean that you do many things, and also the freedom to establish new communities in your places of work so you can see them transformed into oases of life and blessing. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this, for this time of sharing this morning. I, I, I really appreciate the hunger and attentiveness of your people. Lord, you've opened their hearts and their ears to hear, and, and I thank you that, that I've been a privilege to share with them. Lord, I, I pray that you would sow seed into good soil. And I, I don't take any credit from you know, what I've been sharing here. This is just part of my journey, and I've been following you, and that's been a pleasure. It's been an honor, and it's been wonderful. But I bless this people, and I pray for your encouragement upon them. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open their hearts and their ears to hear and to, to take forward that which we've shared this morning. And I do repent, Lord, on behalf of... That, that class of people that have tended to project a superiority because they feel that they are in the spiritual job and everyone else is somehow less significant or less holy. And Lord, I pray that you would tear that lie down in the hearts of each individual in this room. And Lord, I ask that you would encourage them and strengthen them in their places of work and labor, whatever that might look like and wherever that takes them, whether they're handling huge amounts of money or little, whether they're responsible for loads of people or just their own lives and their own family. Lord, may they all discover their vocation, which is so unique to them before you. And I pray that they would live out of that sense of passion and purpose in Jesus' precious name. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, there was such a lot of wisdom in there. Uh, and yeah, I want to encourage all of us to, before Monday, so this afternoon or tomorrow, have some quiet time, try and think of all the 
the stuff Stephen said, what stood out for you, and then make it practical in terms of your workplace, your business. Try and think what God wants you to do differently. Thanks again, Stephen. Um, I just want to, I just have one announcement. So we have an email list where we send invites to events and other emails too. So if you received an email for this event, then you're on that list. But if not, and you want to be on, on the list, there's just outside the door next to the computer, there's a list where you can sign up and just give us your details. And we'll add you on there. And then just one thing, we are looking to uh, sponsor somebody for to join uh, an accelerator program next year. So um, specifically, if you're interested in that, we will send some news about that on email. So then just make sure that you're you're on the list and yeah other than that keep chatting keep networking and have a good week